Life is full of questions. Questions like, what's for lunch? How long is the preacher going to go this morning? Where did you vacation this summer? Where are you going to go to college? What career choice should I pursue? Who am I going to marry? Do you think she'll say yes? What'd the doctor say? When's the surgery? Is it a boy or a girl? When is the kickoff to the ball game? Is the referee blind? Is that mold growing in our refrigerator? How long do you think our son is going to live in our basement? Are we there yet? Life is full of questions. The Bible does not answer all of life's questions. The Bible answers the biggest of life's questions. The biggest question that could ever be asked or answered by anyone is who is Jesus? The answer to that question, the Bible is not silent. The Bible does not leave it up to chance or speculation. The Bible is crystal clear that Jesus is in a class all by himself. That Jesus is the one and only. Today we continue our eight-part summer sermon series simply entitled Preaching Christ. We have seen that Jesus is not just the author of scripture, but he is the subject matter of scripture, that any passage in order to be seen accurately must be seen through the lens of Christ and him crucified. So today we lift up an example of preaching Christ in the epistles. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Colossians chapter one, verses 15 to 23. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Colossians chapter one, I'll begin reading at verse 15. I'll conclude at verse 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard. 
And this is the gospel that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Friend, I don't think that there is a higher Christological passage in all the Bible than the one that I just read in your hearing. The Apostle Paul was in a Roman prison when he was visited by a pastor named Epaphras. Epaphras came and told him about the Colossian believers. The Colossian church was strong, it was sturdy. But in recent days, there had been some false teachers that had infiltrated the congregation. These false teachers were claiming that the death of Jesus was not sufficient for salvation. They were questioning the very identity of the one named Jesus the Christ. In response, Paul wrote this letter. The purpose of the Colossian letter is to exemplify and and lift up high the supremacy of Jesus. So you read the letter of the Colossians and you walk away knowing who Jesus is and his sufficient sacrifice that's been made at Calvary's cross for you and for me. So in our passage, I think Paul lifts up about four phrases, four titles that reveal that Jesus is the one and only. First, Jesus is divine creator. Verses 15, 16, and 17. Look at them closer with me. He being Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. Paul says that this Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Both the Old Testament and New Testament affirm that God is invisible. Yet Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This word image means stamp. Literally, it is exact representation. So what Paul is saying that in Jesus, there is no change, there is no alteration of the divine. That in Jesus, there is no addition or subtraction of the divine. And later he will say that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is God with skin on. He is God in the flesh. And he came and tabernacled with us. Oh, Jesus is not a creation of God or another God or a lesser God. Jesus is God. He is God wrapped in skin. Jesus was not merely a godly man, of which there have been many. Jesus was not a man who became God, of which there have been none. Jesus was and is the God-man, fully God, fully human. For us to say that Jesus is a good man or a good teacher or a religious leader is to demote him. 
Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus will say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father are one. The same essence, the the same stuff. Jesus says the only difference is that I am visible and God is invisible. I've got skin on and God does not. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. Paul goes on to say he is the firstborn over all creation. To say that he's firstborn does not mean that he was born first. No, Jesus has always existed in eternity past to eternity future. But yet 2,000 years ago, the divine stepped out of heaven and stepped into the earth through the birth canal of a virgin girl. That Jesus came to earth. To say he's firstborn is to say he's first in rank and priority. It's not that he's first in chronology, but he's first in rank and priority. He is above everything else. He is the firstborn over all those that have been created. Later, the apostle will say that he is the firstborn among resurrection. Once again, meaning first in rank, first in priority. Jesus is first. Why? Because he's the creator of all things. Paul makes this abundantly clear that he created all things, seen and unseen, visible and invisible. Very reminiscent of what the gospel of John will say in this opening prologue that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. All things were made by him. And without him, there's not anything made that has been made. In him was life and that life is the light of men. That both John and Paul consistently affirm that Jesus is creator of everything. Jesus has created all things. So because he's divine creator, we worship him. He has created everything seen and unseen, visible and invisible. He's created everything big and small, tall and short. He's created all things. It is Jesus who created the sun, moon, and stars. It is Jesus who created the planets, the galaxy, the universe. It is Jesus who created every molecule and every atom. It is Jesus who created every subatomic particle of proton, neutron, and electron. It is Jesus who's created everything. Whether you believe it or not, whether you know it or not, it's still a fact. Jesus has created all things. Jesus created the 200-ton whale. And Jesus created that pesky little mosquito. Jesus created the tallest of the redwood trees. Jesus created the shortest of the dandelions in the field. Jesus has created all things. Jesus created the over 10,000 species of birds. Jesus created the in excess of 28,000 different types and classifications of fish. It is Jesus who created more than 300,000 species of plants. It is Jesus who crafted and made over 900,000 classification of insects. It is Jesus who has created in excess of 7.7 million different species of animals. Jesus has created all of this. The person who approaches me and questions the miracles of Jesus, you know, the changing of water into wine or Jesus walking on the water or Jesus healing the deaf. 
I want to say, come on, man. He made everything. Doing a little miracle is not much of a challenge. I mean, he made everything. He's a creator of all things. And the mere fact that he unstopped deaf ears, that's not a big challenge. I mean, Jesus created all things. This Jesus created all things. And this Jesus, he holds all things together. Jesus is the one that holds everything in place. Have you ever stopped to consider what if the earth stopped rotating? Or what if it stopped moving around that big star called the sun? What if the earth shifted just a little bit, just a couple of degrees off of its 23 degree axis? What would happen? If any of those things happened, my friend, in mere moments, we would either freeze or burn up. If the moon was just a little bit closer to the third rock from the sun called the earth, then we would have waves that rivaled any tsunami all the time. And it would overwhelm us. Life would forever be altered as we know it. What if the sun increased its temperature the surface temperature of the sun i've been told i've never been there i've been told that it's in excess of 10,000 degrees fahrenheit what if the sun just got a little bit hotter it wouldn't take very long for us as humans just to disintegrate friend who is it that's holding all that into place according to colossians chapter 1 it's jesus that the fine-tuning of the universe that demands a creator, the fine-tuning of the universe that if just a few things were altered, just a couple of things were changed in the cosmic scope of the universe, then everything would fall apart. Who is holding all that together? According to Colossians 1, it is Jesus. He is the divine creator. Now let's get a little closer to home. Who's holding your life together? I mean, if Jesus, who holds the galaxies in place, if Jesus is the one that keeps the earth spinning on its axis, if Jesus is the one that keeps all of that in motion, who's holding your life in place? My friends, once again, the answer to that is Jesus. Have there been times when you felt like my life is falling apart? I'm ripping apart at the seams. Of course you felt that. All of us have felt that. We have verbalized that if we've never, and even if we merely think it. There are times when we think to ourselves, everything is falling apart. Yet I want you to know that even in those moments, and especially in those moments, it is Jesus who is holding you together. He created your body. He created everything about you. He created the more than uh, 60,000 proteins that are in your body, one of which is laminin. He, he created that cell adhesive molecule. If you didn't have laminin in your body, your body would literally fall apart. You'd just be a pile of goo on the floor. But it's laminin, that molecule that keeps your cells together. It lines the walls of your organs, keeps your skeleton in place. Keeps your skin where it's supposed to be. I know some of y'all think your skin is drooping, but I'm telling you, if you didn't have laminin, it'd be far worse. 
Because laminin is, is that cell adhesion molecule. It, it just kind of keeps everything in its place. You know how scientists portray the image of laminin? The molecular scientific structure of laminin is a cross. It's not a double helix. It's not a spiral. It's a cross. Now stop and think about that. Your divine creator has stamped his cross upon your life literally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. It is the cross of Jesus Christ that literally holds you together without the cross, without the emblem of the cross. You literally would fall apart. And you're here this morning because spiritually you know that without the cross of Jesus Christ, I would disintegrate spiritually speaking. I would fall apart. It is Jesus that holds me together when I'm grieving, when I'm suffering, when I'm struggling, when I'm standing in a casket, when the doctor tells me there's cancer in my body, the only way I can make it is because I know that Jesus holds me together. The apostle Paul is telling the Colossian church and is telling this church today, this Jesus that we worship, he is divine creator. He holds all things together. Everything is in its place because of him. I know it looks like life is spinning out of control. I know it looks like that everything's falling apart. But Jesus, the master architect, he knows what he's doing. And he's holding everything in place. He's holding you in place. If for one moment, if he took his sovereign hand off of you, you'd fall apart. So this morning we worship Jesus because he's divine creator. But secondly, we worship Jesus because he is sufficient savior. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. In verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. I've already told you that there were some false teachers that were coming into this first century church. Later, church historians will call them Gnostics. Gnostic is is built off of the Greek word gnosko. Gnosko means to know. So a Gnostic came in to say that in order for you to get to God, you've got to know his teaching. And Jesus, they said, is one of many. He's one in a long line of teachings, of emanations, of spirits that have come from God. And you've got to know what Jesus says, but you've got to know the other teachings that God has given. So in other words, the Gnostics would say that Jesus was one rung in a ladder to get you to God. What the apostle Paul is saying is that Jesus, he's not one rung on a ladder. He's the whole cotton picking ladder. He's the only way you can get to God. He is the head of the church. Don't don't miss that that little jab there because the head is the place of knowledge, is the place to know. And so what he's saying is, if if you want to know who God is, you've got to know the head. It is Jesus. He is the apex. He is the quintessential. uh, uh, he, He is the sole sufficient savior of the universe. He's not one wrong. He's the entire ladder. The only way that you and I can get to God is through Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church throughout the New Testament. 
It is a common analogy for the author to compare the congregation to a body. Some of us are hands, others are feet. Uh, a nose, or an ear, an eye. We need each other. Uh, the hand can't say to the eye, I don't need you, uh, and vice versa. And so throughout the New Testament, we are commonly referred to as the body of Christ. But the head of the body is always Jesus. We don't ever get to have that title. We, we're never given that privilege because the head of the body is Jesus. Well, there have been times when I have, in kind of a comical way, tried to ask myself, I wonder which one among us is responsible for the armpit. (laughs) I mean, I wonder which one of us is the reason for bad morning breath, right? Uh, Which one is the little bitty toe that goes wee, wee, wee all the way home? And I realize that's kind of a, that's kind of a little bit of a farce, but, but the reality is that we are a body and we work together. But the head, the head of the church is Jesus. And he's the only one that gets that title because he is the sufficient savior. In verse 18, the apostle will say he is the firstborn of resurrection. Once again, to say firstborn does not mean the first one raised from the dead. No, you've read your Bible. You know that people like the widow's son in Zarephath Or even Lazarus in Bethany. Or the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. I mean, all those individuals were raised prior to Easter Sunday. But the difference is that all those individuals were raised only to die again. But Jesus is the firstborn, first in rank, first in priority. Jesus was raised on Easter Sunday never to taste death again. Jesus conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. When he burst forth from the tomb, he issued life to all those who would believe. What the apostle Paul is saying in so many words is that Jesus plus nothing equals everything that you need. Now there's a tweetable quote that one or two of you may want to put out there. I mean, Jesus plus nothing equals everything that you need. That's what the apostle Paul is driving at. When he says that Jesus is the head of the church, that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, that God was so pleased in Jesus to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ. What he's saying is that Jesus plus nothing equals everything that you would ever need. So don't let any false teacher come into your midst. Don't let anybody come in and try to demote Jesus or derail him. Don't let anybody come in and try to tell you that his work on the cross was insufficient for your salvation, that you gotta have something else plus faith in Jesus Christ. No, Jesus plus nothing else equals everything that you would ever need. And this is what Paul is saying to the Colossian believers. Because he's saying that Jesus is not just prominent, he is preeminent. It's not that he's just supreme. He is sovereign. He is the head of the church. He is the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is a sufficient savior. But there's a third thing that Paul says, that Jesus is a righteous reconciler. Look with me in verses 22, 20 to 22. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil, wicked behavior, but now you've been reconciled by Christ's physical body through the death to present you holy in his sight without blemish 
and free from accusation. Friend, let me ask you, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? And the answer, to reconcile sinners to God. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why he had to die on a cross. That's why he took your sin upon himself. And in that process, he was reconciling sinners unto God. That word reconcile means to bring together warring parties. Sometimes marriages disintegrate into divorce. And the lawyer says, and the people involved say, It was just irreconcilable differences. What does that mean? It means that somebody got up and walked away from the table. Irreconcilable differences. Two warring parties that could not get along. Friend, I am glad today that God the Father did not walk away from the table. He had every right to. We are enemies of God. Why? Paul says, because of our evil, wicked behavior, we are not good. There is no one righteous. We are not born good. We are born totally depraved, completely sinful. We are wicked from the moment of first breath, from the moment of conception, uh, David says. We are completely and utterly sinful. And because of that, we are enemies of God. We have wagged our finger in the face of God. We strive to be our own God, do our own thing. And we have differences with God. And God could have walked away from the table, but he didn't. Because he said, um, I'm going to reconcile lost sinners unto myself. So he sent Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross to accomplish the divine demands that where there is sin, penalty for that sin has to be paid. And Jesus came and died on the cross in our place to pay a sin debt he did not owe because you and I have a sin debt that we cannot pay. So Jesus came and died on the cross and God was reconciling a world of lost sinners unto himself in Jesus Christ. That God does not mete out punishment against you, but he meted out the punishment against Jesus And Jesus literally and figuratively, he died in our place. He took the punishment that we should experience for all of eternity. And Jesus took it upon himself as God squeezed an eternity's worth of condemnation into a few hour window one Friday in the third decade of the first century. And Jesus took upon himself all of God's wrath, all of the whipping, all the punishment that we should deserve. And by that, by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God. We who were warring with God, we who were enemies of God, now God looks upon us and we are friends of God. What a massive miracle. I mean, now we are friends of God. We've been reconciled to God. And it's not because of what we have done. It's because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Paul is quick to say that before Jesus, we were alienated from God. That word means cut off. We were severed from God. There was no chance, no hope. We had no plan in order for us to get to God. We were cut off from God, alienated from God, and the, and the gulf was too wide. There was nothing we could do. 
So it's all dependent upon the activity of God in Jesus Christ. That Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross for your sins and mine, he was placed into a borrowed tomb, and on the third day, he was literally, physically raised from the dead. Because God is just, penalty for sin has to be paid. Because God is merciful, he made the payment for us in Jesus. God is just, so he can't be a liar. God is just. So holiness is required. God is just. He demands perfection. Because God is just, he's saying only the perfect can come to me. Yet the problem is none of us are perfect. We are all completely sinful. And Jesus stood up and took our place. And his innocence was then shifted to be accredited to us. And our sinfulness was shifted and credited unto Christ. So that we can sing that song Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Paul says that we were alienated from God. We were guilty, we were blemished, but because of Jesus, because of the shed blood of Christ that covers over all of our sins, now we are holy in the sight of God. There's no condemnation, there's no accusation. There's nothing that can be brought up against us. Praise his holy name. I wish somebody would get happy just for a moment. I mean, there is nothing that the Father can bring up against you because Jesus has paid the sin debt. It's not that God the Father can say, well, but remember this, or remember that, or remember that time, or this one got through, or that one wasn't atoned for. No, everything has been paid in full. So there's no smell of an accusation against you. To God be the glory. Because Jesus is a righteous reconciler. He did it perfectly. He did it sufficiently. There's nothing dangling out there. There are no loose ends. There's no sin that's not atoned for. Everything has been paid in full. So Paul says, uh, this Jesus that we worship and we serve, Not only is he divine creator, not only is he sufficient savior, not only is he righteous reconciler, but fourth and finally, he is the gospel giver. Look finally with me at verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this this is the gospel that you heard and that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the gospel that God has given us in Jesus Christ. The word gospel means good news. In order to know the good news, you gotta know the bad news. The bad news is we are dead in our sin. The good news is Jesus came to reconcile us to the Father so that we are a friend of God, so our sins have all been forgiven. That's good news. John R.W. Stott said the only function of faith is to accept what grace offers. Paul here says, continue in that faith. Beloved, I want to be crystal clear that faith is a gift from God. But faith is also something that you have to demonstrate in your life. This is why Paul will say that we ought to continue in that faith. Continue in what we know to be true. 
continue in this good gospel that God has given us. And as we continue in it, we know the truth and we know a lie. So that when the Gnostics come and when those uh, false teachers infiltrate the church, we know it, we acknowledge it. Why? Because we continue in the faith. And faith's only function is to accept what grace offers. So by faith, we live. And by faith, we walk. And by faith, hope is given to the hopeless. And by faith, help is given to the helpless. By faith, we stand firm, unmovable. By faith, we go from uh, death unto life. By faith, we accept the good news of the gospel. By faith, we are sustained and saved. It is by faith. Our faith is not built on a fable. Our faith is not structured on a fallacy. Our faith is built on a fact. The fact is, uh, Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago. The fact is that Jesus lived a perfect life. The fact is that Jesus uh, climbed up Calvary's hill and took the whipping that you deserve. And I, the fact is, is that Jesus called the shots even to the very last moment. Fact is, Jesus said to Telestai, it is finished, which means that the penalty has been paid. The fact is that Jesus bowed his head and gave up his ghost. The fact is that they took his dead body off the cross and placed it into a borrowed tomb. The fact is that on the third day, Jesus burst forth from that tomb and he walked out. The fact is that the tomb is still empty. The fact is that we cannot find the bones of Jesus because Jesus' body had been physically raised from the dead. The fact is, death could not hold him. The fact is, the grave could not keep him. The fact is, the devil could not stop him. See, our faith is not built on a fallacy. Our faith is not built on a fable. Our faith is built on a fact. And because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Paul is telling the Colossian church what I am telling the Pelham church today that if you know who Jesus is then you understand the identity of Christ and what he has done for you and you know that because he's divine creator I worship him Because he is a sufficient savior, I worship him. Because he is a righteous reconciler, I worship him. Because he is the gospel giver, I worship him. See, all the Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament proclaims, prophesies about his coming. The gospels tell us about his life on earth. And the rest of the New Testament just merely shows us How to live in light of the glorious resurrection of the Lord. And the good book promises that one day Jesus will come back. And all of this is not a crutch for the weak minded. All of this is not built on just some religious story. And it's not even merely true for me, but not for you. This is fact. The fact is, Jesus is alive. And the fact is, Jesus is here. And the fact is, Jesus is calling you to walk closer to him than ever before.
So if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, today can be the day of your salvation. If you're here today and you are a believer, but there's somebody in your life, a spouse, a child, a grandchild who is far from God, I want you to know the altar is open for you to come and pray unto the Lord. Maybe you're looking for a church home and maybe this is the place where God is calling you to plant deep roots. Whatever it is, I just want you to know that Jesus is here and he is longing for you to be drawn close to his precious bleeding side. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for specifically... uh, The Colossian letter, thank you for inspiring this man named Paul to remind us with vivid clarity who Jesus is. And oh, Father, may we be a people that love Jesus, follow Jesus, are friends of God because of Jesus. So whatever needs to happen in this moment, salvation, rededication, prayers, church membership, whatever it is, Father, have your way. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.